welcome back to Franklin Covey's twice weekly on Leadership with Scott Miller podcast. That's me hanging in there still, your host. 350 episodes taped, about 320 released, where twice a week we try to shine what is the mega bright spotlight of the most trusted leadership firm in the world, Franklin Covey, on to not just our own thought leaders, but people around the world that we think have an expertise on innovation, leadership, marketing, brand development, communication, how to build a high trust culture, how to create connection with your audience. And twice weekly, we interview people that we think can bring expertise to those broad topics we umbrella under the idea of leadership. And I have to tell you, uh, this is going to be my favorite episode of the 350 we have taped over the last six years for several reasons. First, just sheer perseverance. I've been chasing today's guest for over four years. Today I called our booker and I confirmed that it in fact had been over four years that I have been chasing our guest today. He doesn't even know that. He's learning it for the first time right now, but between the layers of communication and publicist and the moat that is appropriately around him, we finally <laughs> broke through. And so I want to stop there for a moment. And I just okay. want to remind you to keep going, keep trying. Whether you're trying to earn a job, yeah. whether you're trying to land a client, whether you're trying to get a date with someone who is really on your list, just keep trying. Because I could have given up hope and for four years, we doggedly chased this gentleman, and today he has graciously chosen to join us. His name is Brian Grazer. You know him as the renowned Hollywood producer, and never in 350 interviews have I read someone's bio, but today I'm gonna do it because this is how compelling <laughs> it is. Brian Grazer, is an Academy Award-winning producer and New York Times best-selling author. His films and television shows have been nominated for 47 Academy Awards and 228 Emmy Awards. His credits include A Beautiful Mind, 24, Apollo 13, Splash, Arrested Development, Empire, Eight Mile, Friday Night Lights, American Gangster, and Genius, among others. He is the author of Face to Face and one of my top 10 favorite books of all times. The number one New York Times bestseller, A Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life, which won the 2016 Books for a Better Life Award, almost done. Grazer was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People and is the co-founder of Imagine Entertainment, along with his longtime business partner, and I'm guessing friend, Ron Howard. Brian Grazer, welcome to On Leadership. Wow, thanks for having me. That was four, quite an introduction. I so appreciate it. Four years, my friend. What were you in? Um, were you hiding in um, the Sub-Saharan? I mean, every time we called, you said yes, but your team said no. Yeah, I, appreciate I don't you understand coming today. it. Brian, your book yes. uh, is a game changer for me. I, I may be embarrassed to admit, but the people who subscribe to this podcast or follow me on social know that I don't see a lot of movies. I don't watch a lot of television. It's not right. my chosen form of entertainment. I'm a voracious reader. Printed newspapers, printed magazines. Mm. Three newspapers are mailed to my house a day. 42 <laughs> magazines are mailed to my home a day. My three boys think I'm a dinosaur. And I read several hundred hardcover and softcover books a year. You can see from our set. Yeah. I have no credibility on restaurant or movie recommendations, but I have a lot of credibility on the power of your book 
A Curious Mind. Um, this is a new book for you. You took two of your previous books and kind of mashed them up. Talk about this new release of A Curious Mind. So what, what I learned, so the two books, I'll, I'll, I'll basically reiterate. The first one was A Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life. And that is a book that in some ways synthesizes 30 years of once a week interviews with people that are renowned or expert in anything other than what I did for a living. So what I would do, what I do for a living is make movies and television shows and documentaries. And I build stories into films. Um, but I would meet um, noble, hundreds of Nobel laureates, um, tech, the famous, most famous uh, founders of technology companies, Steve Jobs, Larry Page, Sergey Brin, Jeff Bezos, of course, um, Reed Hastings, um, all of the Mark Zuckerberg. I knew them all at the very beginning and uh, had curiosity conversations with them and many others, CIA directors, lawyers, uh, the seven most famous trial lawyers in the world. And I put all of that, um, again, synthesized into a book called A Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life, about expanding your um, emotional breath and your intellectual uh, prowess, your intellectual capabilities. We're all sort of put in this book. Then I did a book called Face to Face, The Art of Human Connection, which sort of is the, is the thesis is looking at somebody in the eyes is our human Wi-Fi. It's the way we connect with one another on a deeper and more profound level if you do it correctly. I then thought, wow, all of those great people that I met that in, in the curious mind 30 years, they would have never shared their stories with me and the intimacy of their stories and those insights that I gained had I not really paid attention. And I thought to myself, I must have really connected with all of those people. It felt like I did, but it must be true even from their side because they, again, wouldn't have shared their selves with me the way they did. And I thought, what were the ingredients um, as to why they would do that? And I turned that into a book. Now I thought I can synthesize these books, put them together, some, somehow merge them and modernize them so that you modernize them in a book that is out now that gives you a sense of what matters today in the world of those two things, learning through curiosity and connecting through the human spirit. Brian, I first fell in love with the original version of A Curious Mind I don't know, years ago, apparently four years ago, because that's how long I've been chasing you, when I read it on a plane <laughs> and I came to, I think it was chapter four. It might have even been chapter three in the original book, I don't know. But it was mm. a particular story that I have now told literally hundreds of times to thousands of people. It's a story Sweet. about a meeting you had in New York City. And I would like you to take as long as you would like, this is a seminal moment for me in my career. Thank and, you so and much. truly, you know, you have you have people that you chase that bring to light an insight that they gave you. And I want the same gravity to land on our listeners and our viewers. Would you take as long as it takes to set up the story, to talk about what happened in detail, and then would you sort of tease out 
what the lessons are you want everyone to realize, including the lessons that you realized, because this had a profound impact on every aspect of my professional and even personal life. Okay. Well, th thank you for the question. Um, and also, I've never had anyone, well, admit that they've been chasing me for four years, um, which I'm, I'm I, uh, apologetic uh, about. And... Um, and also, no one has ever in any interview singled that interview, brief interview as the one that mattered to them the most. And so I'm very, I was quite curious as to why that mattered to you. For me, um, Isaac Asimov, first of all, is definitely an expert in a field that I, that was outside of my, you know, outside of my uh, vision really, or outside of my purview of knowledge. And, and, and he was, he is, or was probably the most prolific writer of science fiction ever, Isaac Asimov. Now, you can't just have determination. I mean, deter extreme determination is essential in accomplishing any goal that really matters. So that obsession um, should be funneled and focused into a discipline that helps you every day grind as hard as possible to achieve your particular goal. So in the curiosity conversations, they were all goals. So I was successful after years of pursuing Isaac Asimov to get him to say, I will meet with you. Now, I have this opportunity to fly to New York. I get a coach seat, fly to New York to meet with Isaac Asimov. I realize his wife is going to be joining him. We're meeting at a hotel on the west side of uh, uh, Central Park West. And we meet, and his wife and he both order ginger ales. I order a club soda. It's the morning, about 11 o'clock. And I, I went to all of the trouble of flying there, doing all of those things. But what I found is I just didn't prepare enough. Now, why do I, how and why do I know this? Because unlike every other curiosity conversation, Isaac and his wife sat down, ordered the ginger ales, and after about five minutes, only five minutes, she looked at him, he looked at her, they communicated through eye contact, and they both said, we think you're not prepared enough and don't know enough about Isaac's body of work, and we're leaving. Goodbye. So for all of the energy and focus it took to get there, I overlooked probably the most important thing. I wasn't prepared enough to communicate and create a great, you know, a great experience for Isaac. And that's my obligation. And I failed at that obligation and I was taught a lesson. And so to the best extent, uh, the best extent I can, I do prepare better with greater depth and, and make sure that I do have questions that I think will engage my, the person that I'm speaking with. Because my goal was always in these conversations to not have an agenda to never have an ask, and to um, optimally create the greatest date of their lifetime.
<laughs> um, and I, and I, you know, and we all know what that great date feels like, whether it's um, a date with, you know, a potential uh, partner or whether it's a business date or those moments where your body chemistry and everything changes and you're in flow state. And that's always been the goal for me with all of my curiosity conversations. And I just completely missed and um, it taught me a lesson. So I have tried not to repeat that same fault uh, uh, that I, that I, um, you know, that offense that I, uh, that I su subjected the Isaac and his wife to. So um, it was a great learning uh, tool. Brian, the reason I highlighted it, and I'm not a fan of science fiction, of course I know who Isaac Asimov was and his impact in the world of science and all sorts of technologies, was the fact that I think a lot of us as professionals, when we become confident in our roles, I won't say we phone it in, I won't say we wing it, yeah. but we have a certain level of confidence which can turn into hubris, and we usually can manage ourselves, but you were called out. Like literally, yeah. his wife stood up said this meeting is over, called you out and left you hanging. What did you yeah. think in the moment? First I thought, well, in the moment I thought they were rude. I thought they they could have been more forgiving. I thought that was really rude. They knew I flew in. I didn't have a lot of money at the time. I did it before I was like a, you know, a more well-known uh, movie or tele and television producer before I got all those Emmy nominations, whatever. Um, and, um, and I thought it was uh, probably unnecessary. They could have been more tolerant. Now, in retrospect, I feel the way I felt, I feel the way I expressed it to you just now. I feel like it was all my fault. It's my obligation to engage them. I'm taking him off his agenda and putting him on a mutual agenda weighted towards my curiosity. And... Uh, it's my obligation. And so I, I, upon deep reflection, I take, you know, 90% of responsibility. It's a great cautionary tale. I will um, slaughter this, but I think it was Einstein who's been quoted as saying something like, if I had an hour to solve a problem, I would spend 55 minutes thinking about the problem and five minutes thinking about the solution. And I think it really comes to life in your story no matter how confident we are or how seasoned we are, we owe the other person the respect to do the research. And no doubt your partnership, your alliance, your opportunity, your sales quota is gonna likely be fulfilled by you having done your work. It seems like a simple um, principle and it is. I think it's a great revisit for all of us. Uh, yeah, so I felt like, probably to, to your point, I probably felt like I'm, I am on the way of, to mastering this form this form of conversation. But this was, but I hadn't, I'd underestimated that the form is not the depth of what this is all about. You have to be in a deep place and the deep place comes from really living through, um, uh, through research and thought and living through the person's psyche so that you can actually um, engage them. I mean, op that's what you have to do when you look, when you're trying to get a loan out for your house or you're trying to trying to raise money for your startup or whatever you're trying to do, you have to enter the psyche of the person you're asking. And I think I I think I felt like, well, I've mastered the form of this and I'm not 
and I forgot that I forgot that aspect of it, and that requires homework. Let's talk about mermaids, a topic I've never okay. discussed in 350 interviews. Uh, okay. Uh, Splash. Uh, yes. This was not an easy movie to make. You had some opposition, no. but you teach a valuable life principle in the book when you talk about asking the question, what are people actually saying no to? Would you walk us through that learning? Oh my God, okay, another good question. So I was early in my career, you know, uh, I think at 27 years old or so, I'd written a script. Uh, I, did a, I did a rough draft of a script about a man falling in love with his perfect woman. And the perfect woman had the, had the complication of the fact that unbeknownst to him, she was a mermaid. And so I, so when I would pitch this movie to studio executives or big, you know, big shot producers or whoever could help me get that made, whether it was the source itself, again, a studio or a producer or, or a well-known director, um, they all thought it was the stupidest idea of all time. It, I mean, it was, I became that guy that stay away from him. He's going to pitch you his stupid mermaid movie. <laughs> that, that's, that's, a, that's who I became. That's my silhouette was. And um, I thought to myself, I better like think about recontextualizing the way I tell the story or rebalancing it. Or and and I I did find ways instead of pitching it from the mermaid's point of view I pitched it from the guy's point of view instead of the guy being all alone I gave him a funny a brother that could understand him instead of the guy being a nerd because it's sort of a victim comedy you know like the out of towners with Jack Lemmon it um, or a Woody Allen film I'm going to make him somebody that has one problem the one problem is he can't find love. He just can't connect on that level, but everything else is successful about him. And so I tried all these different things. Ultimately, nobody was buying it. And I was unable to convince people until the one last person, which was at Disney at the time, uh, understood that I wanted to make what really I was trying to make was a romantic film, a movie about love. And that just didn't come through when the veneer of it, you know, the outside story is about a man falling in love with a mermaid. It just seemed too ridiculous. Now, thank God I did get it made. And thank God it was about, it was funny and it was a nice comedy, but it was also predominantly about love. And um, because it worked and it was an orig original idea of mine, I thought, wow, I should only do what I believe in. Don't do what other people think. Do what my soul is telling me. And so that's essentially the story of that movie. But uh, my determination was, un was uh, boundless. Uh, an executive said, you throw Brian Grazer out the door, he comes in the window. If you throw him out the window, he comes through the chimney. If you throw him out the chimney, he comes through a pipe. If you, I mean, it was like, it was, I was just this kind of person and uh, where I just, again, unrelenting. That's the story of Splash. Brian, I think there's a couple of things to uh, unpack there because what I learned in the story about Splash was people kept saying no 
but you had to understand what exactly are they saying no to? Is it the mermaid? Is it the guy? Is it the storyline? And finally, you were able to isolate through persistence and patience and curiosity, what were they really saying no to so you could fix that? In essence, I think there's a great business lesson to learn from people who are pitching opportunities, scripts to publishers, yeah. podcasts to Spotify. You wanna understand if you're getting a no, you're probably not getting a blanket no. You're getting a no to some trigger or some nuance. Reinforce, right. reinforce that learning to everybody who has a dream, who has a side hustle, who has some passion they wanna ignite, but they've been getting no's to it. Okay, what I think I learned out of that, and I've used it many times, is you have to have, um, you have to have a burning vision. And inside the vision, not the story, but what is it that you're trying? What is the heartbeat? What's the soul of the thing that you're doing? What is the basic theme? So I would then start pitching themes instead of the story. So I learned in the case of Splash and many other movies in Arrested Development that, that people in Arrested Development People thought that was outrageous and crazy and uh, seemed like they shouldn't do it. I'd say, you don't root for family? So that's about rooting for family to be together. A crazy family, but it's about family being together. Same with parenthood. Less crazy family, but you root for the family to be together. In the case of Splash, I, it's undeniable that people that... We all know that love is one of the most powerful forces and the most important thing that any in the human species that, that matters in the in all human species is love. So I would say um, you should have a universal theme that people uh, can all understand and relate to. Brian, I like to reiterate the fact that when, we, when someone thinks of you, they think of perhaps one of the most famous, influential, iconic, successful motion picture producers of our generation. I mean, you've earned your way here. But you didn't fall out of the success tree and land in success. I mean, you, you came through the pipe, you came through the window, you came through the yeah. ceiling. Yeah. Will you revert back to the opening story in the book about your first job, quote, in Hollywood? Because I think it's so invaluable like, I'm going to read this book with my three young sons when they're of age. I think the first chapter of your book should be required reading for every junior high school student to teach perseverance and tenacity and curiosity. Would you just in a couple of minutes share the story of, I think you were a legal clerk or whatever the word you used to address the job Law up. clerk. That was a law clerk. A law clerk, because there's so many great lessons for everyone to be reminded of. Okay. So I, got out, I graduated college. And then in the first couple of days, I thought, what am I going to do? I was supposed to go to law school in the fall. And I thought, I need a job. I happened to just accident upon a conversation that I eavesdropped upon. I eavesdropped on three guys, three law school graduates were talking about the easiest job they ever had. I perk up. I listen. I hear one guy says it was the, the guy that says the easiest of all jobs, this cushy job was at Warner Brothers. I didn't really know much about what Warner Brothers was. I was living in Los Angeles, but I didn't realize I was living in Hollywood. So I didn't know anything really about Hollywood. I 
hear that the, he just quit that day, I op and I decide I'll call information, get the number of Warner Brothers, and ask for the legal department, and ask if I could come in to audition for a job. I do that, I get the job that day as a law clerk. So now I have a job because I happen to just be alert. <laughs> and to, to uh, capitalize on my alertness in the conversation was out the, outside my window. And then when I got there, I used the environment of this of, of the legal department uh, to read and learn everything I possibly could about show business. I read the trades. I'd, I'd uh, deliver mail. I would read all of the things that were, you know, anything I could read to help demystify the language of, the show, of what show business is. Because that's the differentiator. The heartbeat of, 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 of most businesses are similar, but it's the language uh, in which to achieve the goal, the goal or gain leverage is always different. So I learned that by just being in the environment. I took advantage of every aspect of my environment which everybody can do. It's free. You know, every job, all you have to do is have an office. You don't have an office, go to a coffee shop. But be aware, be alert, look at people. And uh, something will happen. Brian, to our listeners and viewers, you truncated that story. You've got to buy the book to read this story because the serendipity of you li literally listening outside of your apartment window and then calling up Warner Brothers and saying, I'm applying for the open position XYZ. You named it exactly as they described it, and all of a sudden you were in the office. I mean, it's a great story about- It's a really great story, yeah, yeah. that you have to read, you really do have to read the book. About serendipity other, and, 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 and genius timing and such. Brian, I'd like you to think about a time when you were right about something. All the forces said no, people green-lighted something kind of against their will, and you kind of triumphed as kind of the, the wise sage to say, see, I told you this would work. Is there a movie or a project or something that where your instinct, your curiosity conversations, your research, your preparation, your soul, your passion proved to vindicate that you were right? There's a few of those. I mean, more recently, the, the television series Empire, that nobody wanted to make uh, an all-black uh, uh, it was an all-black uh, uh, network program, you know, nighttime network program, primetime network program. And, but I, I knew that, I just kind of knew that would work, it would work um, because it had certain dimensions in it. It had a power trajectory, you know, it was, uh, uh, it was like, um, and it um, had, it had, Black people, black people, um, the black cast was all in sort of an was in a more affluent environment. So the environment was beautiful, and and it was about meritocracy, and and I just felt like that would work. And we had a great story. Danny Strong and Lee Daniels wrote it, and and I just felt. For sure, there would be a high appetite for this particular show, and that, and um, I'd had success making a lot of movies with, with uh, you know, with other black artists, and I was just positive it would work, and it did. <clears throat> I also had this little movie; it was called My Girl, Macaulay Culkin, and that 
a studio said, absolutely not, never, never, never. If you want to use your put pictures, we'll do that. And I thought, you know, I don't want a pity project with you guys. And I took it away and it became the highest profiting film at uh, Columbia Pictures. So I was happy about that. Um, often for me and others of my, you know, my peers, many of them have had movies that they believed in deeply and others didn't. I mean, Steven Spielberg had the movie E.T. And after, even after Raiders of the Lost Ark and all of his success in Jaws, the a studio turned that down and then was made by somebody else and became the most massive hit of, of all time at that point. Brian, take it to the flip side. Can you think of a time when you were colossally wrong? Uh, the other oppos op uh, opposers yeah. were confident that you were gonna fail. You felt like both your instinct and your research proved you were gonna be right. What was the big failure and why? Oh God, I've had a few, uh, well, a few of these. I was positive. I made, I, I don't know if I, I don't wanna make anyone mad. I produced a movie I was I loved James Brown. I loved what J James Brown, the musician, uh, the artist. I thought he was amazing, and I thought it was a tremendous underdog story. Um, I liked his. I liked everything about James Brown, and I owned the rights. I've spent my own money to keep continuing to renew the rights for ten years. I really wanted to make this movie. I felt like it'd be hugely successful. We end up making the movie. Uh, my partner is actually Mick Jagger. That was a joy to be able to work with Mick um, as a producer and get to know him. And we made a movie that wasn't corny where Chadwick Boseman played James Brown, who was, of course, in Black Panther, and he's an amazing artist. And I was positive that was going to be a smash hit. I just, because you see, he's singing and he's dancing. Movies where people sing and dance the science on that is that they normally are big hits. Well, unfortunately, this wasn't. It was a good movie, but it wasn't a big hit because we just didn't give James Brown likable enough characteristics, and we could have easily done that. But in our commitment and desire to make a movie that was very authentic, it would have been equally authentic if we would have given him a a trait like just generosity. Mike, one of my closest friends, I let him see it. Very, very smart guy. He said, who do I like? And that became the problem. Hmm. You didn't like him enough. And uh, that was something that we just absolutely overlooked. You know, it's sort of in the 10 commandments of filmmaking, it's the number one commandment. And we uh, somehow blew it. Brian, I'm mindful of our time. I want to end our conversation on something we both have a passion around, and that's okay. the power of face-to-face. -face. Uh, I want you to think about all the organizations that have leaders that are listening and watching to this program, whether they're in pharmaceutical sales or they're an environmental company or they sell training or yeah. technology or healthcare. You know, post-pandemic, every company has changed their go-to-market approach. And at the end of the day, you know, people are buying from other people. They're buying based on relationships. And I'd like you to speak to every chief revenue officer, every chief sales officer, every division vice president of sales that has a group of people whose jobs it is to sell their solution to a client and to solve some problem. Will you re-evangelize your passion 
around why pretty much every business should be re-engaged in a face-to-face -face client engagement strategy. Okay, I definitely think that they that that anything that's important en enough to you should be face-to-face. -face. Anything that really matters should be face-to-face because -face, you can um, you enter somebody's soul that way. Um, you cannot multitask. You have to be completely connected to that person. And the way to do that is you have to listen. You have to look. You have to pause. You, you have to, again, be com completely attentive. Think of it as, again, like a date. You, you if, if it matters to you, you... You, um, it becomes a biochemical event. And as far as a leader, it can be a short meeting. It can be 10 minutes. It can be five minutes. But, um, but if you're trying to ask for money and it's going to be a half hour, you still, you have to do all of these things um, that I'm talking about. You must really be calm and be patient and listen and care. And if you're leading a team, that's, that's, for a one-on-one, -on -one. if you're leading a team and you need, I try to um, always create team leaders on a team other than me. And, and you find out what is important to the goal, what's important to that person you're going to say, can you lead this team? And then they take the flag and they go up the mountain with it. You don't want to do everything yourself. You want to engage people that have equal passion and make them in charge. Brian Grazer, Academy Award-winning producer, number one best-selling author of one of my top 10 all-time favorite books, which on this topic, I have credibility. If I'm giving you a recommendation on dinner or sushi or vacuums or uh, movies, I'm not your guy. But when it comes to book recommendations, <laughs> man, I am uh, uh, somewhat credible. The book is A Curious Mind, expanded edition, The Secret to a Bigger Life. Brian Grazer, thanks for... Um, Thanks for uh, uh, joining us today. I appreciate you pouring into all of our listeners. And your presence to me is a testament of, oh, I will also come through the window and through the pipes and through the furnace <laughs> and through the chimney. Clearly. You and I have this in common, my friend. Thank you for joining us. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. We'll see you back here next week for a new conversation on leadership. <laughs> <laughs>